Before we transition to Acts chapter 8, to Acts chapter 9, there's an observation I want to make about Acts chapter 8 that we haven't exactly addressed. Up until this point in our travels through the book of Acts, let's just say the first seven chapters, though there's a lot of things happening in the church, undoubtedly so, still you would call it a church that's motionless because it's a church that was born in Jerusalem and for three years stayed in Jerusalem. There wasn't much motion taking place through the church. They were just kind of settled. But man, Acts chapter 8. I don't know if you noticed it, but as we worked our way through Acts chapter 8, for a church that was motionless for seven chapters, man, they got on the move, on the march. Lots of activity taking place in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Initiated by this great persecution, believers from Jerusalem, we're told were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, most notably being Philip, who went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, following word of the work that was happening in Samaria, we see more activity. The apostles catch word, catch wind. They send Peter and John. And what happens? After praying for these new believers to be, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, dealing with Simon the sorcerer, after traveling to Samaria, we see them working their way back to Jerusalem, but not just on a beeline. Instead, we're told, that they're preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So lots of activity. The church is scattered. Philip goes to Samaria. Awesome work. Peter and John go to see what's going on in Samaria. They go back to Jerusalem. More activity. They're continuing to preach the gospel as they're working their way. While that's happening, Philip. Philip gets word from an angel that he's supposed to arise, head south towards the road that connected Jerusalem and Gaza, Acts 8.26. As we examined last Sunday, because of his obedience, to trust God with the work of Samaria, to go to this desert, deserted road, an Ethiopian, who, by the way, had traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship, is now on his way back, lots of motion, he receives Christ, encounters Philip, was baptized, and we're told went on his way rejoicing, while Philip, horizontally raptured, was found at Azotos, passing through, preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Acts 8, you would say it's the church on the move. Lots of motion. And here's my point. A living faith is an active faith. But you can't help but notice it in Acts chapter 8, that a living faith is an active faith, that it produces action activity, motion, and the life of the believer. It doesn't take a theologian to recognize that as you work through the Bible, the Bible is filled to the brim with activity terms used to describe our relationship with Jesus. We'll put a few on the screen. Take up your cross and follow me. Walk worthy of the calling, all activity. Walk in the Spirit. Run with endurance the race set before you. Go, make disciples. As each one has received a gift, what should we do? Minister it to one another. More activity. Pray without ceasing. And everything, give thanks. Hold fast what is good. Love one another. And on and on and on we could go. You know, it's true. And the physical world, 
the physical realm and the spiritual realm, that inactivity, inactivity is a good indicator of death. Just go visit a morgue. Not a lot happening. Not a lot of motion, not a lot of activity. As a matter of fact, inactivity, not just being a good indicator of death, it's a good indicator that you're dying. If you've ever done any type of hospice ministry or you've had a family member in hospice yourself, they often tell you that the, 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 as little amount of activity as ends up happening, the, you know, they get slower and slower and slower and they, they're not getting up anymore. The, the, the more inactive a person becomes, doctors will tell you is, is a strong indicator death is on the horizon. Inactivities, death, dying, but activity? Activity is strong proof of life. Unless, of course, it's the movie Weekend at Bernie's, but that's an entirely different topic. The point, the point is where there's life, as a key component, there's action, activity, movement, motion. But where there's death or a slow dying, inactivity reigns supreme. Please consider, is there an active evidence of Jesus working in your life. If the Holy Spirit has filled us for the purpose of Jesus working in us and through us to reach the world, if Jesus is living inside of us through his spirit, he's doing so to do things, not just chill out. There's a purpose, there's a plan, there's a mission. And that's not to sit on your couch and do nothing. You see, the spiritual life will have motion, it will have activity, it will produce evidence. Are you alive in Christ? If you look at your life, do you see Jesus working? Or instead, are you dead in your sin and trespasses? Interesting, the Bible sets those two contrasts, alive in Christ, but dead in sin. Now, well, Acts chapter eight, records a church on the move. Acts chapter nine opens with Satan making a move of his own. Verse one, we're told then Saul, still breathing breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now, before we dive into the particulars of Saul's conversion, I wanna take a few minutes and develop a detailed profile of Saul. And I think this is important for the following four reasons, so bear with me. First, understanding the man behind the name is important for beginning with Acts chapter 13, the story of his life will dominate the remainder of the book of Acts. So it's important for us to take a moment here before we even get into his life to set a profile. Secondly, the particulars of his upbringing will help us understand why Saul ended up being the perfect man to carry the gospel into the unbelieving Gentile world. Thirdly, his education in Judaism explains why Saul was best equipped to then write the majority of our Christian doctrine. Saul wrote, penned 13 of our New Testament books. This man's important. 
And finally, the events leading up to and immediately following his conversion shed an important light on the radical nature of Saul's devotion to Jesus. So what do we know of Saul? First, Scripture tells us that Saul was a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, Saul would say himself that he was circumcised on the eighth day, sign of being Jewish, of the stock of Israel, purebred, the tribe of Benjamin. He even defines himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. No doubt, Saul had been named after another descendant by this particular name from the tribe of Benjamin, no doubt, King Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul, or Salos in the Greek, means desired one. So he's a Hebrew, proud of his ethnicity, his, his heritage. Secondly, the Bible tells us that Saul, while being Hebrew, was originally from Tarsus. In Acts 21, verse 38, he reiterates that while a Jew, he was from Tarsus in Cilicia. With a history dating back some 6,000 years, Tarsus, which today is located in the southern portion of modern-day Turkey, close to the Mediterranean Sea, but not a port city, it is one of the oldest cities on earth. Tarsus, because it had been very quick to embrace Greek language, Greek culture, Tarsus became a hub not only for the Grecian Empire, but ended up serving as the capital city for the Roman Empire, becoming the capital of this province of Cilicia. Tarsus was known widely in the day as a university city. It was also an economic hub. Historian Howard Clark Key remarks that during the Roman Empire, Tarsus ranked even above Athens and Alexandria as being the center of intellectual life. Please understand, when it comes to Tarsus, only the elite, the upper class, lived in this city. So with that in mind, it's not out, outside of the realm of possibility that Saul grew up in a family that was wealthy, that had some type of power, notoriety. He also grew up surrounded as a Hebrew in a Hellenistic culture. Saul, while knowing Hebrew and Hebrew heritage and culture, also was very familiar with Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek customs, would all make this man, interestingly enough, the prime candidate to reach these very people. Because of Tarsus, her strategic importance, rich history, historian Robert Percerelli says that Tarsus was awarded by the Roman Senate the privileged standing of libera civates. This means that Tarsus was a free city. This is what this Latin phrase means. Tarsus was allowed to govern herself and her residents were given, they were bestowed the privilege of being Roman citizens. In Acts chapter 22, verses 25 through 28, Paul not only affirms that he was a Roman citizen, but he takes it a step further. He says that he was born a citizen, which means that they had spent, his family had spent much time in Tarsus. Him being a Roman afforded him all kinds of perks, not given to most Hebrews. 
mainly of which we'll see playing out later in the book of Acts, the right to have his trial heard before Caesar so he could appeal directly to Caesar. Now, non-ethnic Roman citizens, they often had two different names. The first name indicated their original heritage, their ethnic heritage. Their second name signified their Roman acceptance. They would have an ethnic name unique to their own culture, but they'd also have a Roman name. It is likely that Saul's official name, even now, is Saulos Paulos. Kind of a tongue twister, you'd say. But this is his name. You should note that later in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 13, verse 9, when we see a flip, when we see this man being referred to as Saul, now then being referred to as Paul, some have said, well, he just changes his name out of the blue. He goes from Saul to Paul. And that can get confusing because when we're talking about Saul, we're talking about Paul. When we're talking about Paul, we're talking about Saul. He doesn't change his name. Instead, he chooses to be known by his Roman name. And why would he do that? Well, he would do that because at this juncture, his whole purpose, his whole point, as he's traveling the Roman world, carrying a Roman passport, traveling Roman roads, ministering, taking the gospel to the Roman world. He's a Hebrew, but he's trying to relate. He's going into Gentile communities. And so instead of using a Hebrew name, that being Saul, he instead uses his Roman name, that being Paul, to be identifiable. So he's a Hebrew. That's good. He's from Tarsus. That's helpful. Explains he grows up in Greek culture, why he has Roman citizenship, helpful details for uh, understanding this man, the thought process behind him. But you should also realize, and I think we've already seen it at this point, but Saul was a devoutly religious man. In Acts 23, verse 6, Saul would declare himself to be the son of a Pharisee. Though Saul grew up in a Hellenistic culture, a global intellectual center for the world, there is no doubt that he was also raised in strict adherence to Jewish customs and protocols laid out not only in the Torah, but the Mishnah. You see, Saul at the age of five would have begun studying, memorizing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. At the age of five, he would go to the local synagogue and begin memorizing the law, the scriptures. At the age of 10, if he proved uh, smart and wise and a, and a good student, he would then advance to studying now the Mishnah, the traditions. If once again, he proved to be a good student, at the age of 13, Saul would have then graduated to a formal rabbinical school, no longer being trained at the local synagogue, but more than likely leaving Tarsus at this point so that he could continue his studies in Jerusalem at the feet of a renowned rabbi named Gamaliel. We were introduced to him in Acts chapter five. In Acts 22 verse three, Saul even tells us that while born in Tarsus, he was brought up in this city, that being Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, a rabbi, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and that he was zealous towards God. All of this suggests that Saul was incredibly bright, 
proven worthy to receive the best theological training available in all of Judaism, that Saul excelled as a student in his studies, that he possessed an earnest attitude towards the things of God. You couldn't memorize the first five books of the Bible if you didn't give a rep. I mean, they very quickly were able to weed you out if you were not interested in the things of God. To become a student of Gamaliel, Saul loved his studies, had an earnest attitude for, towards the things of God, desired to grow in these things, love these things. He took the law and obedience to the law very, very seriously. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Saul tells us that he advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation. He was at the top of the class. He says, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, stock of Israel. He grows up in a Gentile culture, so he has exposure to the world, an intellectual hub for Hellenism. He's also a great student. He's religious, deeply religious. This interesting combination of sorts, working its way, developing this person. We're told also that Saul was a Pharisee who served as a member of the Sanhedrin. In Acts 23, verse 6, and Acts 26, verse 5, Saul declared that according to the strictest sect of their religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He mentions this affiliation a third time in Philippians 3, 5. Now understand, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a political party in Israel that rose to prominence during the second temple period following a failed Maccabean revolution. The Pharisees, if we were to equate them to a modern equivalent, would be the conservatives. They would have been the fundamentalists, the nationalists of the day. They believed in a literal interpretation and application of scripture. They were absolutely the right. First century, historian Josephus, who, by the way, was a Pharisee, he wrote that the Pharisees in this day were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of Jewish law. See, Saul was more than a religious man. He was a religious leader. He was an expert in scriptures. He modeled a life, lived in accordance to the law, the strictest aspects of the law. Saul was esteemed by everyone. Now, because Saul mentions in Acts 26, verse 10, that during this very period of Christian persecution, that he cast his vote against the believers, having them put to death, it seems as though as a Pharisee, he had risen to prominence by becoming a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a 71-member ruling body that took care of domestic affairs, religious affairs. So he's a Pharisee, but he's also chosen to be a ruler, to make decisions, to cast a vote. Fifthly, Saul, beyond being religious, a Pharisee, prominence and authority, he defended the religious system of Judaism. It's interesting. Some five years, and this is where we are, five years after the church was born, 
On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God filled the hearts of men, changed the world forever. But five years later, these followers of Jesus, they were being simply referred to as those who were of the way. The word Christian hadn't been coined. Believer didn't exactly classify because all of Hebrews were believers. They were just known as those who were of the way. This phrase, the way, or hodos in the Greek, it is the earliest term that we find used to describe what we consider to be Christians or followers of Jesus. It's used five times in the book of Acts. Now, what makes this title so fascinating to me, and I think so relevant and encouraging, is that this title not only expressed a mere belief, but defined this belief as a way of living. Once again, a life of faith is a life of activity. The way, yes, it's the way in the sense that this is the way to God, but it's the way in the sense that it's also the path that we travel, the way that we achieve, the way that we get to God. It's both, it's, it's a belief system and it's the way that we live within the belief system. I wonder where they got this phrase. I'll give you a clue. John 14, verse six, Jesus said, I am the way. Same word, hodos. Then he says, I am the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not only the way to the Father, but he is the way to the Father. Now, while Gamaliel, who was a man of prestige and respect, all in his own right, while he had taken a passive approach towards this new movement, towards the way, saw Saul believed that he could no longer sit idly by and allow what he perceived to be a growing heresy within Judaism to gain momentum. Saul, Saul reached a tipping point. He could no longer stay by. He had to do something. Something had to be done. Judaism had to be defended. So Saul, Saul breaks ranks with his elders. He dissents, and he initiated single-handedly a great persecution towards Christians in the name of defending what he perceived to be the truth. In Acts 7 verse 58, we're told that as they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, the witnesses, well, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, we're told that Saul was consenting to his death and made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, and additional passages, committing them to death. What we find described is a maddened animal devouring, tearing into, tearing apart his prey. It wasn't just that Saul disagreed with these Christians or that he opposed these Christians. It's that he was enraged by them. He hated them. And he took pleasure and satisfaction in the vicious work that he was doing. This phrase that he was consenting, it means that he was enjoying. You see, after a year on the march, a year of him making havoc of the church, we're told that Saul is still what? He is still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord. The King James Version translates verse 1 of Acts 9 as that Saul was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Literally, the phrase means that these threatenings and this slaughter towards believers were the very elements from which Saul drew his breath. You see, destroying this movement, destroying these followers of Jesus, crushing it, eliminating it, wiping it from the face of the earth, it's what drove him. It became the most important thing in his life. It was his lifeblood. It's what made his heart tick. Saul would say in Galatians 1 verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, of which he would later be very ashamed. He says how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. And then he gives his own mission and tried to destroy it. You read through this, and sometimes you can detach yourself from the reality of what's happening. This is like Saul's, the commander of an ISIS army, working his way through Iraq, targeting churches, Christians, tearing them down in the name of Judaism. This would be like the Muslim Brotherhood burning Coptic churches, taking out the believers and slaughtering them. He's maddened, he's enraged. He hates these people. You know, one can reason that Saul's reaction to these believers centered around the threat. The threat it posed to his entire way of life. As a devout Jew, Saul understood the ramifications if Christianity was allowed to spread, what this would mean for Judaism. You see, his entire worldview would come crumbling down. His religious system was literally under assault. You see, if salvation came by faith through Jesus, if that was true, his religious zeal was meaningless. You see, if salvation was a gift of God, the grace of God, his sacrifice, his, his dedication to obey the law, well, it, it would be pointless. If Jesus was the only way to the Father, Saul recognized that his whole religious system was worthless. Everything he had dedicated his life to would be nothing but vapor. If Jesus was the Messiah, his rejection of Jesus, he understood, would be his own undoing. Please realize, the reason Saul lashed out is that he was indeed backed into a corner. He recognized that it was time to take the fight to them. He either accept that everything he had devoted his life to no longer mattered, or lash out and seek to crush this movement and, well, an act of pure self-preservation. Saul, Saul chose Judaism. He chose religion over a relationship with Jesus. Sadly, according to both Acts 22 and 26, Saul would justify this murderous rampage as being spawned, and I quote, a zealousness towards God. He thought he was doing God's work. 
And the name of God, these deeds were being done. They were being done by a deep conviction, according to his own words, that he had to do things. He must do things contrary to the name of Jesus. See, always understand that a genuine act done in the name of God does not always guarantee the act itself has been sanctioned by God. Saul thought what he was doing was honoring God, was pleasing God, was protecting and defending God. He's going to find out he was opposing God. The sixth thing we should point out here about Saul is that Saul was resisting his own conscience. Yes, what he was doing was defended in religious zeal. He was defending Judaism. Yes, that was a component. But the other aspect of Saul motivated him, what fueled him, is that he was resisting his own conscience. From the account that we've already been given by Luke, it appears that the driving force behind Saul's violent campaign towards Christians stemmed not just from religious zeal and fanaticism, but more deeply from a resistance towards the truth of Jesus. First, there was Stephen's debates with members of this synagogue of the freedmen. Synagogue of the freedmen was a prominent synagogue in Jerusalem that had branches all throughout the, these regions, one of which was a branch in Cilicia. We're told that in the book of Acts. Tarsus, being the capital city of Cilicia, more than likely, was the hub of this prominent synagogue, no doubt Saul had been a part of. It's not outside of the realm of possibility that as Stephen is debating in Acts chapter 6, members of this synagogue, that he's actually going toe-to-toe in his debates, none other with Saul himself. This places an interesting context to what we find as a result of these debates in verse 10 of Acts 6. We're told in response to these conversations, they, of which Saul was a part, were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, did they respond to the gospel and get saved? No. They arrested Stephen, took him before the Sanhedrin to have him tried. And then there was this sermon that Stephen gave in Acts 7, of which we know by context that Saul was also a part of, that he heard the words of Stephen himself. Stephen's indictment at the end of his sermon is still interesting in the context of Saul. Stephen accuses them, all of them, of always resisting the Holy Spirit, which means they were, what? Resisting the Holy Spirit. Then we're told that when he had said these things, they were all cut to the heart. Now, once again, did they respond to the gospel, get saved? No, they took him out and stoned him to death. But the idea, the idea we're given by the way that Luke recounts these events. Interesting, I wonder where he got the events. Probably from Saul. So Saul is giving these tidbits of information, these clues as to what's happening in his heart, that he's resisting the Holy Spirit, that he's, that he's literally striving against what he knew to be true. Stephen's debating, and over and over, though he begins to lash out, and he's trying to rationalize, and he's working through his logic, and they're going toe-to-toe, and how deep down he knew Stephen was right. And then when Stephen gives this sermon, deep down he knew he was pricked. Literally, we're told, that he was cut to the heart, the depths of his soul. He knew that what Stephen was saying was true, but he refused to accept it. You see, Luke's narrative, it indicates that Saul, 
Saul knew, even as he's persecuting those of the way, that he knew the truth of Jesus. But he still chose to resist. Now you might say, why in the world? If he knew the truth, would he resist the truth in such a violent way? Well, it's for the same reason many of us do. You see, Saul resisted the truth because he could not, he would not accept the implications that it would have for his life. He enjoyed his life too much. He didn't want his life to change. He knew the truth, but he also knew what the truth meant for himself, and he resisted it. You see, the final thing we should note about Saul is that his main problem was himself. Saul's main problem was Saul. It wasn't the Christians. It really wasn't even Jesus. It was himself. You see, if you strip away his religious fanaticism, you will find at the core his problem is self-righteousness. Saul was a smart man, a wealthy man, a religious man, a disciplined man. Saul took pride. He found satisfaction and his ability to obey the law, to please God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he would even say that concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. You see, Saul's fundamental problem wasn't those who followed the way. His problem was with the way itself. Saul rejected Jesus. He resisted Jesus because he didn't like what Jesus stood for. And what did Jesus stand for? <laughs> Man's need of a savior. Salvation by grace through faith. Saul was determined to do it himself and he rejected help. He didn't think he needed it. It was assault on his pride. Saul, you know, Saul was so pridefully wedded to his own moral righteousness that he was just unwilling to humble himself, to admit that, well, he wasn't good enough. Righteousness wasn't achievable, that he would have to rely on Christ. And it's with all of this established that we get back to our text, that Saul, procuring the documents needed to arrest Christians in Damascus, he came near the city, when suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Acts 22 tells us that the time of day is noon. The light that's shining is brighter than the noonday sun. And Saul fell to the ground. Now, common depictions has him on a donkey, and he falls off the donkey or horse. That's not in any of the texts. That's something we've just kind of worked into it. Either way, he's knocked to the ground. And he hears a voice. Now, this voice, according to Acts 26, spoke in Hebrew. And said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb. But you know, I don't think it's ever a good thing when a light from heaven knocks you to the ground. Like puts you on your tush. That's never a good thing. You're driving home and a light from heaven shines and you screech to a halt. That's not a good thing. A lot of us would think immediately, I'm being abducted, right? 
a light shining from heaven. This is bad news. But you know, it's also not a good thing when the light knows your name. (laughs) A light shines from heaven, knocks him on the ground, and Saul, Saul, he's looking around like, is there another Saul in this wilderness? Nope. So it's not good when a light knocks you to the ground, knows your name, and then asks you a question. Why are you persecuting me? Boom, boom, boom. I mean, you're squirming a little bit at this point. Now, it's clear from his, from his question, from the interactions here, that Jesus viewed persecuting the church very personally, didn't he? He actually doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? I hope you understand that when you're persecuted for Jesus' sake, you're not the one they're persecuting. They're persecuting Jesus, and he takes it very personally. Saul's, why are you persecuting me? Bad news. Now, we often can read into the tone things that don't exist. Like this beaming voice, it's, the hair rises up on your neck and your arms. You're like, oh no, there's a lightning bolt on its way. I'm done for, I'm toast. But this repetition, Saul, Saul, it's not an accident. In regards to the Bible, anytime that you see a repetition of the first name by God, it often indicates a very soft and compassionate tone. Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. Moses, Moses at the burning bush. Jesus, looking over the city while tears are rolling down his face, cries, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem. Simon, Simon. Martha, Martha. And now here, Saul, Saul. Now Jesus would have been justified in in every right to have used a strong tone for there to have been anger in his voice, vengeance oozing, but no. I think he gets knocked to the ground, this light's blinding, and the words are full of compassion. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? Though Saul is disoriented by the light, we'll find out later he's blinded by it. He can't see. You can imagine he's in a state of pure horror. I would be. He does understand that he's having an encounter in this moment with God. As a Pharisee, as a Hebrew, as a defender of Judaism, he would never use the word Lord accidentally, without intention. He recognizes that God is intervening in the situation in a very radical way. Imagine the sinking feeling. He says, who are you? He builds up the courage. Who are you, Lord? Then to hear the next three words, I am Jesus. Oh, snap, right? Like those are the three words. At this point, if you're Saul, you don't wanna hear. Like if there's any question, if you're toast, Maybe the compassionate tone, he's just reeling me in. I am Jesus. I am in trouble. 
You see, the implications were unmistakable. <laughs> Jesus was alive. I mean, dead men don't talk. He's God. He's already affirmed that he's having an encounter with God. He's called him Lord. Jesus is alive and Jesus is God. And Saul, well, he had just spent the last couple of years pitting himself against the God of the universe by persecuting and killing his followers. But then Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an interesting phrase. Using some terms we might not be totally familiar with, but a goad. A goad was a spear, or it was the sharpened end of a staff used by shepherds to herd cattle. Because of the edge, it was used to take a wayward animal and redirect it back along the path that the master, the shepherd, desired. It was a tool, an instrument to keep you along the right path. Which means that as Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick or to resist the goad. This means that God had been leading Saul, but what had Saul been doing? He had been fighting against the very tool God had been using to lead him and guide him. He had been fighting against God. And once again, I sense a tenderness in the voice of God, in the voice of Jesus. I don't think Jesus is standing here. It is hard for you to kick against the goat. Like, I think that there's compassion. Like, he's not in judgment. He's not levying a series of charges against Saul. Like, I think you can hear a plea in his voice, asking Saul to just stop it. Like, stop it, man. I want to do something in your life. I have a plan for your life. Saul, it's hard, isn't it, to resist me? Are you done? Will you quit it? You've been resisting me and you know it. And you've been miserable. Will you stop? So Saul, trembling, you can imagine, astonished. You can imagine. He, he replies. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? So the Lord said to him, rise and go into the city. You'll be told what to do. To his credit, Saul asked the relevant question. I mean, many of us would be begging for forgiveness. He doesn't. He just asks, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? It was kind of similar to saying, you're right. Lord, I give up. I surrender. Now what? Like, what comes next? He's not asking, like, I think that he could very well be in this mode of thinking that it's, it's it for me. Jesus has intervened. He's called me out. Judgment follows, but that's not what takes place. You see, I'm convinced that it's this moment that Saul of Tarsus, a Hebrew of Hebrews, becomes a believer, that he converts. And why do I think this? Because he says, Lord, he affirms who Jesus is, Jesus is and then he follows that with a what next, which means surrender, complete surrender. I'm no longer my own, you are God. And now you tell me what needs to come next because 
Apparently, I've had it all wrong. I love Jesus' response. Because it, for a Pharisee, Jesus' reply wouldn't have been what he would have expected. There's no doubt that if not judgment, Saul would have at least expected to have been given a set of penances. Okay, I've been persecuting the church, killing Christians. I've been doing all this bad stuff. If you're not going to kill me, if you're not going to judge, at least let me know what I can do to right my wrongs, to fix it. That's not what Jesus tells him, does he? He doesn't give him penances. He doesn't give him a way to fix his wrongs. He doesn't tell him anything just to go to the city. He gives him a set of instructions for that day. And then what does he say? Arise, go to the city. That's your command. Do that. And then he doesn't even tell him when. I'll tell you later. Like, like right now, it's not about you doing anything, brother. It's about you just going to the city and doing nothing. So the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. Now there's a whole backstory here with these men, but we're gonna get to it to another account later in our travels through Acts. They heard a voice. They didn't see anyone. Saul rose from the ground. His eyes were open, but he couldn't see. He couldn't see anyone. So they led him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus. And we're told that he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. For three days, God allowed Saul to sit in the darkness, wrestling with the implications of what he had just encountered. The resurrected Christ had just radically intervened in his life and he knew nothing would ever be the same. He'd come to terms with that. When he uttered the word, Lord, he accepted the implications of what would follow, but I'm sure his mind raced. That would be only natural. For three days in silence, his thought processes are, what would his peers think, his job? What kind of implications would this have for his family? Would the church that he's just been persecuting ever accept him? What would his future look like? You see, in a very real sense, Saul would sit in the darkness of his own death for three days. Interesting. Chewing these things over before experiencing a glorious resurrection. Now, before we close, I just want to share three simple observations. And I know I'm running out of time, so track with me. The first thing that jumps to me, I can't avoid it, is that God never gives up. He never gives up on any of us. He never gives up or gave up on Saul. Now, obviously, he sent Stephen and then Stephen's sermon, and the Lord was consistently pricking his conscience and his heart. But you know, I think that Saul's interactions with Jesus came way before his encounter with Stephen. I'm convinced, as recorded in three different passages in the Gospels, that Jesus' interactions with a rich young ruler was actually his interactions with a young Saul. Let me read you Matthew's account, see if it fits the profile. Put Saul as the face behind this young man. We're told that now behold, one came, said to Jesus, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. 
shall not commit adultery, shouldn't steal, false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man replied to Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, and note, what was Saul's problem? Self-righteousness. Go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is just the theory. Maybe the rich young ruler is not Saul. Maybe he is. There's other evidence I don't have time to share. We could talk about it at another point. But this seems to fit. So imagine, place this context. If this, on the road to Damascus, wasn't the first encounter, but the first encounter came back to the exchange with this young man, I take great solace knowing that as the rich young ruler turned to walk away, that Jesus looked at him. One of the accounts says that Jesus looked at him in love. I think Jesus knew what this man's future held. He knew the path that he was on. He knew the radical nature that Jesus would have to take to get through to him. But a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of things would happen between, but as the man walked away, where everyone would have looked and said, what a disappointment, what an opportunity. Jesus, I still got a plan for him, that he wasn't done. Though Saul was not willing in this moment to let go of his pride, his self-righteousness, though he would consistently resist the moving of the spirit in his life on more than one occasion, though he would do everything to kick against the goads, the will of God, in the end, Jesus would get through. Jesus would get through. Which leads me to my second observation, and that is that you can't fight against Jesus forever. There are some of you fighting. You are kicking against the goads. You know the truth, but you're resisting it because you know the implications. You can resist Jesus, but not forever. Scripture tells us that there will come a day where every knee will bow before Jesus. Every knee in heaven and on earth. See, Saul resisted and resisted and resisted, but that resistance didn't last forever. There came a moment in his life that God intervened and said, enough's enough. You can resist God, resist Jesus till you die. But you will, you will not continue to resist him in eternity. For he will say, depart. And guess what? You will obey. You will recognize his authority. You will recognize his lordship. And you will obey the commands of God. For he says, depart, because I don't know you. And guess what, my friend? You will depart. May you stop resisting. May you stop fighting. Friend, it is hard. It is hard to resist God. It is hard to resist his moving. But then you can't help but sit back and smile, knowing that if Saul could be saved, then no man is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. I know there are some of you parents that have been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying for a prodigal, a son or a daughter who have walked away. 
And at this moment, you might look at the situation and say, nothing can be done. It's a lost cause. For decades I've prayed, nothing. No one is beyond the reach of God. Take heart. Maybe today, that person, without even expecting it, encounters Jesus on a lonely, deserted road. No man is beyond the reach of God's saving grace, but there are others of you that have checkered pasts, that have made really dumb choices, tragic mistakes, and the thing that's holding you back from full surrender is this nagging thought in the back of your head, deep within your heart, saying, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. The answer to that question is, that's true. <laughs> you're not worthy. And you're not good enough. None of us are. If God could reach and save Saul. If Saul, God still had a plan for his life. If he wasn't beyond the reach of God, then you're not either. I would imagine that you haven't been going around killing Christians. But even if you have, we should talk about that later, but you can still give your life to Jesus. I read a story, read a book this week, close with this, about a young man named Musab Hussein Hussef. His father is one of the seven founding members of Hamas. Grew up in the West Bank. And at the age of 18, he got flipped and became a covert operative, deep undercover in Hamas for Shin Bet, the Israeli counterintelligence unit. For 10 years, he thwarted hundreds of terrorist attacks until he got invited. So, so Hamas operative, his father's sheikh, Hussein Youssef. He's steeped in Islam, a brand of Islam that says, if you go and kill yourself, as long as you kill other Jews, you're going to heaven. That's his religious background. He gets invited in Jerusalem on the east side to a Christian Bible study. And he walked in and they gave him a Bible and he started listening. He ultimately defected to the United States for one reason. Not because he no longer believed in the cause, but because he believed that Jesus had a greater plan for his life. For he was now a follower of Christ. If he wasn't beyond the reach of God, then you're not. And if God has a plan for him, poor child, born into a terrorist family in the West Bank, then doesn't God have a plan for you? If you would just stop kicking against the goats. So Father, we ask...